We are going to turn to the continuing surge in union organizing in some of the largest retail employers in the country. Workers at Trader Joe's stores in New, in New York City and Oakland, California, on Wednesday filed to join the independent Trader Joe's United Union, organizers announced. The National Labor Relations Board typically reviews the verifications petitions and then will set election dates. We don't know when the elections are, but organizers at those schools are gearing up uh, for an upcoming union election. And they are seeking to do so with Trader Joe's United, a young independent campaign led by the grocery store workers themselves and not established with any other union. Last summer, Trader Joe's United in Hadley, Massachusetts, and in Minneapolis unionized the company's stores with that union, Trader Joe's United. And workers in Louisville, Kentucky, followed suit in February. Trader Joe's United is now in the process of bargaining their first contract, and workers are pushing for wage increases, more paid time off, and sick leave, among many other proposals. A union date, well, while the union date is not clear for Lower East Side's Essex Crossing Trader Joe's, which is the one in New York that's uh, uh, at hand, uh, a majority of 150 employees need to opt to join in in order for that union vote to succeed in the union's favor. And there have been several unsuccessful attempts already in New York to unionize different stores in recent months. The popular 14th Street wine shop actually shut down ahead of a planned unionization campaign last summer, and last fall workers in Williamsburg voted not to unionize. To talk more about this campaign at the Exus Crossing store in Lower East Side, we're going. We're joined by Gabe Medrano, who is a union organizer there, and he has been working at the company for six and a half years. Gabe, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, glad to have you here. So let's get straight into it. Tell us uh, how and when the union campaign started. Um. The union campaign, uh, I guess, officially started uh, a year and a half ago. It's kind of had its ups, ups and downs since then, kind of moments where there was very little organizing activity and then moments where um, there's like right now where there's been so much organizing activity, it's almost hard to keep track of all of it. Um, but maybe the past six months have seen the most intense activity. Um, we filed their cards, uh, I believe, last Wednesday. Uh, so right now we're in our pre-election period, uh, still waiting on our date from the NLRB for our election date um, and just uh, trying to sustain our supporters and win over some people that are still undecided. Uh, right. And, and uh, Gabe, can you talk about to what extent uh, uh, union campaigns and at Starbucks and uh other uh, recent uh, high-profile campaigns have affected the organizing at Trader Joe's. Um, the uh, like the uh, Amazon labor unions campaign and the Starbucks campaign um, definitely influenced us. Uh, I believe uh, I wasn't there when Trader Joe's United was founded at the Hadley, Massachusetts store, the first store to create this independent union. Um, but I think they were uh, inspired by this new, very young new labor movement where people are being drawn towards independent unions that are uh, running things, uh, running their campaigns a little differently from the larger labor unions and how they've uh, run things in the past. Um, so I think we were definitely inspired by um, those campaigns and the, the youthful energy behind them. 
What has your campaign looked like uh, at the Trader Joe's down there uh, in the Lower East Side until now? And then how do you plan to sort of or are you gearing up ahead of the election? What has it been like talking to your coworkers and what have they had to say? Um, thankfully, now, since we filed our paperwork with the NLRB, we are a public union campaign. So we're seeing um, in the break room, we're just having open conversations about the merits of a union. Um, whereas before we were, you know, whispering in the break room or, or kind of looking over our shoulder to see if the manager was walking by, um, just in fear of uh, possible retaliation. I know that Starbucks workers have seen a huge amount of firings and retaliation for their union activity. Um, so far, I believe at the Williamsburg store, when they voted uh, during their union campaign, there was one supporter who was uh, conveniently fired uh, uh, for their attendance um, right around when the campaign was uh, starting off. So information like that has definitely influenced our secrecy up to this point and our caution. Uh, for example, um, in the height of the pandemic, when things were uh, especially crazy, there was a Trader Joe's worker named Ben Bonima, um, who worked at, I believe, one of the Upper West Side Trader Joe's stores. He wrote a uh, private email to Dan Bain, the CEO of Trader Joe's. Um, uh, it uh, went viral on Twitter, this little moment. He wrote an email kind of outlining some uh, changes he'd like to see as far as like the air filtration system at his store. Um, that was very detailed and uh, uh, very concise um, and respectful. And uh, a few days later, he was fired by our regional manager herself, who came to this, his store to fire him personally. Um, so stories like that definitely influence us to keep a low profile and one by one talk to our coworkers outside of work if possible. Um, but now that uh, we are a recognized union campaign by the NLRB, we are much more open and uh, having more honest conversations at work. And, and can you talk about some of the things that specifically uh, incited uh, workers at the Essex Crossing store uh, to want to take this step, including uh, uh, a, a a sewage uh, leak that took place in the store last year and uh, left a lot of uh, workers uh, distressed by how management handled it? Yes. Um, so... Uh, it kind of all started with the uh, pandemic. Uh, I worked through the entirety of the pandemic, as did many of our coworkers. Um, at the start of it, uh, Trader Joe's was a little slow to institute some kind of pandemic hazard pay to compensate us for working at a time where we were very concerned for our health and safety. Um, it took them a while to install like safety barriers or plexiglass or allow masks and gloves and um, take an active role in reminding uh, customers of those kind of safety policies. Eventually, Trader Joe's kind of got on, um, did a better job of addressing those things um, and instituted the hazard pay. Um, but as soon as the uh, vaccine came out and essential workers were um, put at the top of the list to receive the vaccine, uh, Trader Joe's removed the hazard pay fairly quickly. Um, at my store, the plexiglass, uh, the, the signage um, advocating for six feet of distance uh, were removed overnight at my store without us being told it was going to happen at first. The next day, we had um, a very heated like meeting with our store manager, uh, where she claimed that um, those changes, uh, the, those safety barriers and such were removed overnight without her knowledge as well. 
which I, at the time, I think we all found very hard to believe. Um, we didn't have a union at the time, so that kind of really was an inciting moment where I decided, me and the others decided that um, we need to have something going forward to protect us from unilateral decisions like this, where um, we're just completely not taken into account and people we don't work with at the corporate office are making decisions that deeply affect our lives. And we don't even know who these people are, really. We don't see them. We're not uh, given a period where we're asked our opinions on things. These decisions are just made so suddenly. So that was definitely an inciting incident. Um, the the uh, sewage leak was definitely another one. Um, Trader Joe's stores often have, like, small events where the store is um, inoperable. Uh, sometimes the refrigerators go down. Um Sometimes uh, just something goes wrong, like a sewage leak. Uh, and in those moments, you really see um, that there's no, there's not enough of a guideline or some kind of process to address a situation like that. Our managers didn't know whether to we close the store down to customers, um, but our managers had a crew, asked crew members to stay for several hours to see if eventually they could reopen the store again after uh, some kind of maintenance crew came to address the leak. Um, so people were there at the store kind of wandering around trying to find other tasks uh, to occupy their time while they waited to hear if the store was going to reopen while the managers were also trying to hear, I guess, from higher ups on how, how to address the situation. So moments like that really show us that we need um, more organi organizational structure and uh, a system in place to um, advocate for us at our store and with the company. And how does it feel... Um in our last minute or so, how does it feel to be in contact with the workers now at other uh, stores in other parts of the country and to be talking about these same problems you have and the same goals you have? And then lastly, if you could just let us know um, how people or workers can follow you, get in contact with the union um, or keep up with it. It's really great. I'm in con constant communication with um, the workers and the union leaders at the other unionized Trader Joe's as well as uh, crew members at uh, non-unionized Trader Joe's who are interested in getting involved in organizing. So this level of conversation across the company is uh, very powerful and very informative. And um, I think uh, Trader Joe's crew members are really great people. That's why I've done this job for so long. I enjoy working with uh, the people that work at Trader Joe's. So I'm really seeing us come together to have uh, these conversations and learn from each other at a level like never before. So it's uh, really inspiring. Um, I believe you can follow Trader Joe's United on Twitter or also on Instagram, uh, where uh, Trader Joe's United puts out updates on our bargaining, um, updates on our organizing, and um, just overall good vibes uh, for our new movement. Great. Well, Gabriel Madrano organizing at the Trader Joe's in Essex Crown, Essex Crossing, Lower East Side, New York. It was great to have you on and we'll be catching up with you later. Uh, have a great rest of your day. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Goodbye. You too. And here at the Independent, we've been closely covering the upsurge in the labor movement over these past two or three years. And we've had some more exciting developments just in the past week that we want to share with you. Uh, for starters, Amba, the Amazon Labor Union, which you've followed closely, uh, got some uh, good news last week from the National Labor Relations Board. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, being able to organize in the break rooms at Amazon warehouses is pretty pivotal because Amazon employees tend to work um, far from the warehouses. And so house calls maybe aren't live far from the warehouses, I live far from the warehouses. So house calls aren't as easy as in other workplaces. So this is a big one. Um, after a very long legal battle between Amazon, the company and Amazon labor union, the national labor relations board announced just Wednesday that Amazon must grant break room access to employees who are organizing their coworkers to vote for a union or just organizing to push for better working conditions. On April 1st of last year, the Amazon Labor Union won its election at the Amazon Warehouse JFK 8 in Staten Island, becoming the first union to prevail over the company ever in the United States. And the ability, as I said, of the union members to organize in break rooms for long periods of time before and after their shift provided crucial access to their co-workers ahead of their union election. Amid Amazon's heavy-handed and often illegal union-busting campaign, access to the break rooms was fought for tooth and nail. But in June of last year, the company broke that agreement, instituting a new access policy, barring worker organizers from break rooms except for 15 minutes before and after their shift time. And all of the Amazon Labor Union's core organizers at JFK8 in Staten Island have been penalized under this rule, taking away from their organizing even further. The company's crackdown has made made it much harder for the union to build support at JFK 8 and harder for it to force Amazon to come to the table and negotiate a first contract. It's also impeded organizing elsewhere. So Wednesday's decision from Region 29 National Labor Relations Board that Amazon break room access policy violates federal labor law sets a precedent not just in Staten Island, but all around the country for U.S. Amazon warehouses. Though it's not clear whether the National Labor Relations Board will push for a federal court mandate that would punish Amazon for continuing to limit this access. And even if they do, it it rarely affects the company in any severe way. The NLRB also found on Wednesday that Amazon has violated the law by refusing to bargain with the workers at JFK 8, and that would be the first step in obtaining a bargaining order, which is when an employer is forced to come to the table and bargain, and those are only implemented when it's evident that an employer will not come in good faith to the table, which is pretty clear with Amazon, so that's the update for now. And we have some more good news to share, right, John? Yeah, that's right. So uh, Starbucks Workers United, which has unionized more than 290 Starbucks uh, stores across the country since December of 2021, uh, they've run into an intense anti-union campaign from the corporate leadership of Starbucks. Uh, more than 100 workers have been fired, all sorts of harassment. Uh, something the company has also done is selectively extend new benefits to the non-unionized stores and refuse to extend them to the stores that have voted uh, to unionize. And and one of the benefits they extended uh, was allowing the workers at non-unionized stores uh, to be able uh, to receive uh, tip money uh, from customers uh, using their credit cards. is something the company had previously refused to do, considered it too burdensome. Uh, they did extend that again to the non-unionized stores. And, uh, and, and this isn't the first time that uh, Starbucks has done that. And, and it's had a very chilling effect on the union 
uh, campaign because it's like, well, if you join the union, you, you lose out on things that other stores are getting. Well, the National Labor Relations Board in the past few days uh, ruled that this is a, an illegal practice and that Starbucks uh, must not only uh, extend the same treatment on on tips from credit card payments to its unionized stores, but it it will have to uh, repay the workers for their their lost compensation from the tip money they would have been entitled to. Uh, what exactly that will look like remains to be ter- determined, and the company, of course, may try to uh, drag this out further. But uh, if if this tactic is you know is eliminated, uh, it will greatly help the the union drive at Starbucks. Um, so, and of course, uh, great for the workers uh, to get uh, get some back pay as well that they were uh, deprived of because of this illegal tactic. Uh, so that's encouraging. And uh, tomorrow, a uh, 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 longtime uh, Starbucks uh, CEO uh, Howard Schultz will be uh, dragged into the spotlight and uh, made to testify before the the Senate Health Education and uh, Labor Committee, chaired by Senator Bernie Sanders. Uh, Bernie's been trying to get uh, Schultz uh, to come testify in public and and be held accountable for uh, some of his abusive practices for uh, a number of months now. So that there should be some fireworks tomorrow around that. Um, but um, also uh, some other good news, uh, the uh, presidential election for the United Auto Workers uh, was finally decided in the last couple of days. It was, um, the, it was a very close vote. Uh, and the uh, reform caucus within the union prevailed. Uh, Sean Fain won by uh, roughly 600 votes out of uh, more than 130,000 votes. Uh, it's the first time that someone outside of the uh, administrative caucus, uh, which has led the union since the 1940s, has prevailed. Uh, the reformers, which say they want to uh, create much more a much more aggressive union, um, have won the majority on the union's executive board. So this is a big breakthrough. It was also the first time in UAW history where uh, uh, members were allowed to directly elect their leadership and not through a, a more indirect ele- election method. So uh, that could get really interesting at UAW. Of course, UAW isn't just auto workers anymore. More than uh, 20% of its membership uh, is in academia, higher education workers, grad students, and others. And um, in here in New York, we've had UAW unions uh, going on strike in recent times. The the strike at the new school we covered in the fall, that was UAW Local 7902, the grad student worker strike, that 10-week strike uh, up at Columbia in the fall of uh, 2021. That was UAW Local 2110. So um, if uh, you know UAW can really uh, revitalize itself and become a more aggressive union, uh, that could be uh, a really big deal as well. We've seen that with the Teamsters as well. They had a a, a direct election and also uh, dep- you know installed a, a much more uh, aggressive uh, uh, leadership. And and one other uh, thing I want to highlight is in Michigan, where the UAW was born and really sort of the cradle of the American labor movement. Uh, uh, right to work legislation, which was imposed by the Republicans in that state in 2012 was repealed last week. The Democrats won a trifecta in control of the legislature and the governor's seat and governor Gretchen Whitmer signed uh, legislation repealing right to work, which is a very uh, debilitating uh, law that makes it hard for unions to collect 
uh, dues from the members who benefit uh, from union representation but don't want to actually contribute to it. And um, so that's the first time a state has repealed right-to-work legislation since 1965. And uh, so uh, very encouraging to see uh, Michigan you know, sort of reconnecting with its uh, union roots there. And uh, but, but we're also uh, looking further than the United States. Amba, uh, you've had your eyes on what's uh, happening in France, where the unions are playing a large role in galvanizing a very uh, intense response uh, to uh, the government of Emmanuel Macron, which is trying to impose a higher uh, retirement age on the whole population. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there was a, a round of strikes and protests today in France, and there's been strikes and protests over the past 10 days or so um, all over France. Uh, there is a clip that I have uh, from some demonstrators in Paris, uh, some folks I know in Paris, uh, speaking about uh, the demonstration, what it's like to be in the street there and what the cultural atmosphere around uh, the the protest is. And a lot of us say, well, we need more culture protest. Um, so here's an eye in into, into France's. They still go to work, like for the, for example, this morning everybody was going to work. In the afternoon, they take just three or four hours to just uh, uh, demonstrate uh, and to be there. Like, um, um, so I wouldn't say that the the country is shut down at all. Actually. It seems that is the first time I see Paris living so much since uh, the lockdown in uh, in 2020. Uh, when you go in the streets, uh, like the the only thing that doesn't work is the traffic. That we, you don't have any car for like one whole day in a in a big area in Paris. But for example, the shops are still open, and um, the only thing that is shut completely shut down are the banks, of course, because people are um, like burning um, the banks. Um, um, actually, what I think also with I, I listen uh, this this year, for example, I work in um, I'm I'm a student actually, and I also work uh, in a animation uh, studio, um, and both at my school and in the studio, which are two very different uh, area. Um, all the uh, many many people are uh, going to the streets uh, during. Um, uh, during the demonstrations, so um, it's the it's uh, like uh, in, and people are very easy to convince to go. The, the young generation uh, isn't so used to demonstrate actually, and now they are. Uh, it's coming back. Uh, like uh, people are um, young people are uh, massively in the street, and it's it's very it's uh it's so joyful <laughs> lots of people are dancing and listening to music and um and uh like saying like uh, the typical song of demonstration also Oh, 
the time during demonstration. Uh, it says like, uh, here we are, here we are. Uh, even if uh, Macron doesn't want, here we are. Uh, for the honor of the labor uh, and uh, uh, and for a better world. And uh, we, here we are. This is the translation. <laughs> Yeah, so that was uh, Noemi Collins speaking from France, and she translated at the end a bit the song there. You hear the youth being uh, very angstful against uh, President Macron for a uh, good reason. Oh, that was uh, beautiful to hear. Singing always makes uh, protests uh, better. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, real quick here, um, before we have to cut out to the break, I mean, I think a couple of observations that we might want to share with our listeners. I mean, we both had some ex- spent some time in France is, I mean, for one thing, you know, France has a very generous, uh, social welfare state compared to almost every other Western country. And that was a sort of a, a an, and developed, uh, from a post World War II, essentially social compromise between, uh, the ruling class and society. Uh, coming out of World War II, France had a large communist party, uh, very powerful labor unions. Uh, you know, for France to stay aligned, uh, you know, with the West and, and, and it, as a capitalist country, uh, the ruling class had to make a lot of concessions, universal health care, uh, you know, generous pensions, vacation days, all of that. Um, and, and the people in, in France have been very protective of that generous uh, social welfare state. And we saw a similar, uh, Developments after World War II in other Western countries, of course, here in the U- in places like the U.S. and Britain, uh, that uh, sort of social compact uh, has been aggressively rolled back, uh, you know, going all the way back to the 1980s. But in France, they've been able to stave that off to a good extent. And um, as we see, they're very uh, determined to protect uh, what they've won in the past. Right. And going back to the French Revolution, uh, there's there's a deep history there of uh, stepping in when the government overreaches. And then there's a lot at play there, too, uh, with uh, how much the police move to stymie uh, protest and, and how it's um, more ab- easier to protest. As Noemi said, all of everyone gets off early from work and goes protest. So there's a lot there. Yeah, it's uh, pretty incredible. We'll continue to follow uh, that story. Um We'll be taking a short break here in a moment. 